because you're jumping back into the gut. All right. Hey, Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media on Twitter at Bball Immersion or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Coach is really excited today to have Doug Lamoff with us. Doug is a former teacher and school principal. He helped found Uncommon Schools, a network of high-performing schools in underserved communities. His book, Teach Like a Champion, now Teach Like a Champion 2.0, describes techniques used by exceptional teachers. It has sold more than a million copies and been translated into a dozen languages. In his most recent book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, Doug brings his considerable knowledge about the science of classroom teaching to the sports coaching world to support coaches on the court and field. Doug, love the new book. I have loved all your books and blogs and videos. Uh, the new book is a must read from cover to cover. Uh, very stimulating, deep thinking, and confirmed and added to so many ideas that I share already. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for saying such kind things about the book. I appreciate it. Well, we both have a passion for decision making. And as you call it, the most important proficiency of all, which I couldn't agree with more. Can you talk about the under acknowledged role of perception? Yeah, it's so fascinating because I, you know, I care a lot about decision making and had thought about a lot about its role in coaching for a long time. And it wasn't until I started to study perception that I realized that one of the key things that has to happen for someone to make the right decision is their eyes have to be in the right place. They have to be looking at the right things and, and, and looking for the right things. Um, and that's true with any decision, but especially in a sport like basketball where decisions happen fast. You know, I think one of the fascinating things that, you know, cognitive science is really revolutionizing how we understand understanding and learning in the last, you know, in the last 10, 20 years. And one of the fascinating things that seems so mundane that cognitive scientists have figured out is how fast uh, we think, and and it turns out that we take about six tenths of a second to have a conscious thought. But there are lots of times in competitive sport in a basketball environment where you have to make a decision faster than that. The example I use in the book is actually from baseball, where you know, like a major league hitter, a fastball wraps it in at home plate from the pitcher's mound four tenths of a second. And so, like, how, how do you know how do great hitters do it? And ironically, for so long, they thought it was about reaction time and they would do reaction time drills to sort of like speed up their response. And But it turns out that the way that major league hitters do it is they're reading cues from the pitcher, right? Their eyes are going to the right place and they're looking at the right things and they're reading arm channel, angle of angle, you know, the angle of wrist, angle of shoulder, hip rotation. And that tells them what the pitch is going to be and where it's going to go. And so fast decisions especially are often they often skip our our conscious intellect our working memory they go straight from perception to action um and so you know it's doubly perception you know it all starts with perception in fact many cases major league hitters are a good example people have no idea what they're doing with their eyes in other words for albert pujols who i write about in the book at the time that this discovery was made was the best hitter in the major leagues he had no idea that the secret to his hitting was where he was looking. And he had no idea how he learned it and what coach or what setting along the way had cued him into the things to watch in a pitcher to help him understand what was going to happen. And so, you know, his excellence was a glorious accident. 
it's such amazing stuff and I can't wait to dive deeper into this. And, uh, but let's start with this first part, which is you've already acknowledged this perception before the decision, before skill execution. So my question is, do coaches have it a little bit backwards that we start from skill in terms of the way we teach the game? Well, that's a great question. It's a little bit of a chicken or the egg question because until you, I would argue that until your perception is also affected by the degree to which your working memory is full. And so the, the example I give of this in, in the book is if you're driving your car and you're trying to change the radio station or adjust the climate control or have a conversation with your spouse about, you know, what to pick up at the store, suddenly you're 10 times more likely to have an accident making a left turn across traffic because when your working memory is full, when you're thinking actively about something else, efficiency at perception goes down. And so it would be hard to teach perception in an environment where players had to think consciously or to emphasize perception and get perception into players' experiences as quickly as possible. You know, like players lined up doing drills. Uh, one of the gaps there is that they're not really perceiving the cues and the, and the settings that they would see in the game. But on the flip side, you know, one of the ways to help a player who is struggling with decision-making is to automate the skills that they would make at the time that they're making the decision so that they have more working memory left over for perception. So I'm not sure there's a simple answer to that. Well, for most coaching dilemmas, there aren't a simple answer. And a lot of it, again, for us as coaches is to figure it out. But what you're bringing attention to is something that I believe is underserved. And that's fair to say is that we probably don't spend enough time on perception and decision. Agree there. I think it's the hidden story of, of athletes and of athletic endeavor. And it plays out in so many different ways. You know, um, I'm a soccer guy. And I just, there are so many soccer athletes who, the, the kids who are often taught the worst are the kids who are out, positive outliers at a young age who are more skilled. The coach lets them continue to win based on and, and play in a way that is, that it's a short-term, it's a short-term way of playing. They're not, when, when everyone is great, they're not going to be able to do what they do in the game, but the coach lets them continue doing it because it appears to lead to success and it brings glory to the team and glory to the coach and the kid feels successful when really someone needs to say in a couple of years, buddy, you're not going to be able to do that. You got to learn now. We've got to start understanding the game and its nuance but what happens is kids persist in that. And when they're 16, we say, wow, whatever happened to that kid? You know, did he just lose, did he just lose his motivation? You know, like he just not love the game that we, you know, did it all go to his head? Maybe, but maybe it's that we <laughs> failed to recognize that we weren't teaching him to make the types of decisions that he would need to make in a few years. And that, you know, it was the coaching environment that just as likely could have failed him. I want to come back to the coaching environment and then how we actually, in your experience, we should be training some of these decisions and perceptions better. But let's go back to what you said earlier, which is expertise is in the eyes. Can you explain that to everyone? Yeah, um, well, I, I explain it in the book via a video, a couple of videos, uh, one of which is of, of some, uh, some musicians, pianists, and uh, it's an expert pianist and his very, very good, but not quite as good student. And they're wearing eye tracking glasses when they play. And what you discover when you watch their eyes move when they play is that um, than hers. In other words, they look at far fewer things and they lock in on the most important point. When he's sight reading, he's scanning up and down between the treble clef and the bass clef just ahead of where his hands are 
moving to be able to understand where he's going to go next. And he glances down at the keyboard to get reference zones to help him position himself to set up his hands on the keys. And it's interesting because you would think that the mark of expertise would, would and, and her, sorry, and her eyes are much more all over the place. They move less predictably, less consistently, and they cover a much wider range of just physical space if you look at the range that her, that her eyes move. And this is fascinating because you would think the mark of expertise would be that you would take in more information, right? The better you are, the more you see, but it's actually the opposite. And the, the name for this concept is the quiet eye. And it shows up in basketball and it shows up in baseball and it shows up in sports, which is the thing, you know, when they put eye tracking glasses on expert performers, their eyes are quieter. They move less. They rest. At, they know where the signal is and their eyes rest at the, at the signal and they ignore the noise. And so, so much of their expertise starts with essentially, I know, I know what to look at and my eyes look there naturally. And so I'm, I'm gathering the right information and I'm ignoring the extraneous information which less proficient athletes, I think you would argue, fail to do. So talking about expertise, uh, let's give an example of LeBron James. What you're basically saying is that a player like LeBron James is able to distinguish the important from the unimportant much faster than a less expert player who attunes to all of the information. I think that's right. I mean, I think you could, you could, you know, the visual field is full of signal and noise and the mark of his expertise without our, often without our realizing it is that, you know, he's looking, he's looking at and paying attention to signal and maybe a lesser player is more distracted by noise. You know, I was, I was talking about the video of the piano players. There's also a video of, uh, you know, one of the sort of like the LeBrons of, of soccer, Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, and they show him sort of, you know, dribbling against an, uh, against an opponent and his eyes are without him realizing it, his eyes are scanning, you know, ankle, knee, hip, hip, knee, hip, knee, ankle. You know, he, um, he locks in on the parts of his opponent's body that tell him what he's going to do. Um, and, and he's reacting, you know, and he, he's reading that more quickly and more proficiently than, uh, than another athlete might. Uh, and the video gets really fascinating after that, because we'll have someone serve him corner kicks, which he's trying to head into the goal and they turn the lights out uh, at the moment that someone kicks the ball and he's still able to determine just from, from reading visual cues so effectively where the ball's going and he's able to head the ball into the goal in the dark. It's incredible stuff. And, uh, you know, I think the other challenge, and this is a challenge for basketball coaches as well, is that a lot of these studies haven't really gone that far beyond, as we said, some of these laboratories, and they haven't really got into sport as much as we want them to. Uh, the quiet eye research for people that want to go look at it, Joan Vickers did some of the pioneering stuff, is basically looking at gaze, gaze behaviors right before the movement. And I give the example, and I'd like you to maybe talk about this, as someone going in to shoot a layup. Yeah, it's a great question. You, I, I suspect that you know more about this than I do, but um, but I think it's a fascinating area. Which is what I've read about basketball is that where you know where you look when you're shooting is really important. You want to look at the back of the rim. Do I have that? Am I am I correct about that? You know, and there's a lot of debate yeah. even about that. But the right. I think right. the main part of it is from the quiet eye research. It's not even where you look; it's how long you can keep your gaze yeah. on that spot. Yeah. And I think that's interesting because, you know, I think one of the questions we have to ask is a cause versus correlation question. I had a similar conversation with, with rugby coaches about kicking a rugby ball. And what they found was that the most of that elite level, the best kickers 
look at the point of the ball and they sustain their gaze there for, you know, X, X seconds. It remains an open question whether you would make someone a better kicker by telling them to do that as to whether, you know, whether their gaze fixing where it does for as long as it does is, is cause or effect. So I, I think that, you know, like there's still research to be done here, but it does seem like, um, well, one, I think the clear time that you, you've talked about is not only where you're looking, but the, the, the sustaining of the glance that they're looking steadily in the right place. A, fixing it on the most important thing, but just as important, I think a cognitive scientist would, would point out is not, not looking at other things, not being distracted, right? I think one of the attention generally is one of the least understood and most important aspects of learning. And attention is as much about what you tune out as what you tune in. And so when you're looking in a, you know, fixedly in the right place, you're also not causing yourself to try to react to or to take in and process extraneous details. Yeah, that's such a great point. And, and all basketball coaches can relate to this is that players go in for a layup and then they drop their head. And I think a lot of people biomechanically think the problem is the head drop, but yeah. it's not the head drop. It's the gaze drop and the idea to keep your eyes on the target as long as possible. Yeah. Or maybe it's a common, it's a combination, a combination of, both of gaze both. And, and, the, and the body reacting to the changing gaze. Right. I'm always struck by I'm a terrible, <laughs> I'm a terrible mountain biker, but what they say with mountain biking is don't look down. Right. Because you, as soon as you look down, it changes your physiology and it causes you to lose your balance and that, or, you know, or, or throwing a, um, throwing a baseball. When I taught my son to throw a baseball, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about mechanics, but what really helped was when I told him, you know, like, look at the mitt, step towards the mitt throw that, um, that a lot of it is, you know, your mechanics follow your gaze a lot um, in, in ways that I'm definitely not only at the limits of, but beyond my area of knowledge and expertise here, but I do think there's a connection between where you look and how you look and what your, what your body is inclined to naturally do. Well, and we're here to stimulate thinking. So again, we don't have to have all the answers, but we're trying to stimulate thinking. So people think about these things. And one other thing you made me think about, which is that you state that decision-making and problem-solving work in coordination and tension. Can you talk about the differences between the two? Yeah. And I think the first step is just to differentiate them. So I think the um, working, you know, like the role of working memory is, is critical here. I would say that decision-making is decisions that you make fast and therefore without the full, full activation of your working memory. When that happens, it's basically a linkage between perception and long-term memory, which is um, habits and a series of predictions that are encoded in your, um, in your long-term memory. Problem solving is when you bring in your working memory, you bring in the most powerful part of the brain, right? Penicillin and uh, string theory and all those things. Like We develop those by using our incredibly prodigious working memory. And so how do you encode the, um, the habits that are in your long-term memory that show up when you have to make fast decisions? Well, I think that's where problem solving comes in. So I would want a lot of problem solving or a significant amount of problem solving in a training environment because there I can take my time and I can think about what should I be looking at? How should I be thinking about it? One of the other key things that affects decision-making and perception is background knowledge, right? Um, you, uh, in the new version of Teach Like a Champion, I have an example of, a, of a, a cell. And I asked a series of science teachers to try and think about all the things that they understood to be true about this cell, this image of a cell that a novice would not understand. And the, page, the list was two pages long, right? That like 
that the mitochondria are not this actual size, and this is a cross-section of the mitochondria, and, and all of the organelles are actually moving around in the cell in the cell while this is happening, and they're 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 not always this, you know, one organelle is not always the same shape. All this implicit knowledge. And so when they look at the diagram, they're literally seeing a different diagram from what a novice would be looking at. And so your knowledge shapes what you see, how much you see when you look at a diagram. And so the place where we encode knowledge, where we build knowledge is, you know, you, you remember what you think about. So the more we think about things during training, the more likely we are to encode them in our, in our knowledge and have them become useful when we want decision-making to happen during the game. And so I think that's, you know, some of the, some of the area of syn both, both synergy and, and challenge, which is like problem solving is often too slow for me to use in the game, but I'm often trying to convince, players, I'm often trying to convince players to think more, but actually there are settings where they can't, um, where they have, you know, it really has to be encoded in advance. So, and, and to me, a lot of what you're saying comes back to practice design a little bit too, which is yeah, we, we create drills and we create opportunities for players to practice mindlessly instead yeah. of have them engage their mind. So can you talk about the importance of that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the hidden, hidden dramas of, of coaching, which is, you know, we should be as attentive to their, I want my, I know that I want my players to hustle and practice and that if they play hard, they will learn more, but they also need to be mentally cognitively engaged you can go through an experience and not not think about it and therefore remember almost nothing uh, memory daniel willingham the cognitive psychologist says is the is the residue of thought and so the more i'm thinking the more experiences are going to be imprinted in my memory so um you know not overloading working memory is important but not underloading working memory is also important i want to keep a, a sense of constant challenge and really build what, what what i think is almost as important as building a habit for players of constantly being like intellectually on as soon as they walk onto the court you know you cross into the court you expect the game to ask questions of you and you're always ready to answer them and this is this is one of the sort of overlaps with the class where i see the clearest overlaps with the classroom in chapter three, I show a video of this soccer coach, James Beeston, who begins practice by telling his, his players, okay, we're going to pause a lot during exercises, and I'm going to ask you questions. Don't shout out the answer. Raise your hand. Right? And right there, usually in, most, in most practices I see when coaches ask questions, the same two or three verb, highly verbal kids call out answers. Right? Coaches know they should ask questions to make the rules and the parameters for how that happens. And so I... And about the topic that he's asking about. But then the second thing he does is he says, sometimes I'll call on you whether or not your hand is raised because the game asks questions of you. So the minute you walk on this field, you have to be ready to answer those questions. And so he would pause and say, great, what position are we in? You know, what defensive formation are we in right now? Trevor, good. And uh, where does that mean the, the center back should be David, right? And this, this idea of cold calling means you always have to be prepared to answer a question. You always have to be intellectually engaged and attentive and I just think that these sort of questioning habits are really important to building and always a mentally always on environment in, in training, because, you know, I, I just seen so many practices where the coach is asking questions and players are looking off and uh, off into the distance because they know they're never going to answer the question. And they, and they learn that they can just, you know, just tune out. And so if I want to use those tools of intellectual engagement, I've got to seed the field a little bit and prepare kids for it in, in, in an intentional way. Hey coach, I know I've told you about this before, but bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. Bet online even covers award shows, TV, and reality TV. 
Real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, your sports book experts. Please use promo code ARMCHAIR at checkout. So people that listen to the podcast and know me know I'm a big fan of cold calling. Mm-hmm. I'm on board with that. Like, But the one caveat is you have to create psychological safety. You have to create this understanding that, hey, physical mistakes are okay in practice. So is answering a question wrong. Otherwise, you're not going to get the effect you want, right? Yeah, I, I, I call that culture of error. And I think it's, it's more than just okay. It's, I think I have to communicate it's a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. My favorite phrase is, um, I'm, it's, this comes from a math teacher. I'm so glad I saw that mistake. It's going to help me to help you. And then even another way of thinking about this in a, in a basketball practice is I'm so glad we made that mistake today because I don't want to make it on Saturday, right? So if we make it today, we can study it and we can fix it. And that's a good thing. You know, I, I talk in the book about John Wooden's great distinction. You know, someone asked him you know, what the key to teaching was on the basketball court. And he said, you know, it's understanding the difference between I taught it and they learned it. And that's really what chapter four of the book of the book is about. But I think the hidden story of psychological safety is that if my goal is to understand what my players don't understand, if they're trying to hide that from me, my job just got 10 times harder versus if they're willing to share it with me and they're not defensive about it. And they think it's a, they think it's not only safe for me to know, but like fascinating and part of their job to, to push themselves to explore what they know and what they don't know. Then suddenly, um, we have a culture that's built around learning and it's, and my job just got, got a lot easier. And so I do think that, you know, when I watch great coaches, they're demanding and they love excellence, but when players make mis, you know, like they're really careful about not rushing to chase in a player for making a mistake, but like, you know, pause, great. Let's look at why that happened as a, you know, God damn it, Chris, how many times are you going to give the ball away? Pause. <laughs> let's look at why we're giving the ball. Let's try and understand it. Let's recreate the scene. Um, but, you know, when I, um, if I don't make it safe to expose that error, then players are going to, players are going to try and hide it, hide it from me. And they're not going to try and they're not going to have the conversation that they need them to have to study. Their- well, uh, it's, it's incredible, incredible knowledge you're sharing. And, uh, the, the one example I come back to is like, say players missing a layup, let's come back to that and yelling at a player for missing a layup. The other thing you think of the score back there, right. Sorry, I think we mixed up there with the pause. No, you, you guys, sorry, I think we glitched there, but you go ahead with the question and I'll jump in later. No, I was just going to say that's tremendous knowledge you're sharing. And, uh, you know, the example that I've given to coaches in the past is that, you know, they're not trying to miss a layup. Like, you don't need to yell at them for missing a layup. They're not trying to miss a layup. He knows he missed. <laughs> he knows he missed. Yes, we're giving no knowledge at all, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and I think that that, you know, there's a different form of psychological safety there. I think there's also psychological safety for the coach, which is a lot of the times our first reaction is I want people to know that I taught him better, that I know better as a coach. And so, um, you know, the first re- reaction when a kid misses a layup is, you know, come on, Danny, you can't miss the, you know, you can't miss that. Like that doesn't really help Danny in the moment. All it really does is establish to everyone else that, um, that it's not, that it's not about me. And so I think slowing myself down and just being t- intentional about like, how does my reaction help this player develop? 
How am I giving you now? Um, even if I tell him afterwards, uh, I don't know what you would tell a player if he missed it. You, you, you got <laughs> got to look at the basket, Danny, right? Like um, that doesn't help him afterwards, right? So maybe there's better time for that feedback. Um, well, and I want to come back to feedback, by the way, because uh, that's another part of your book that's tremendous. But maybe just staying because you brought up the John Wood Wooden's uh, adage about, uh, yeah. you know, knowing the difference between I taught and they learned it. One of the other takeaways for me from that chapter, chapter four was, and can you talk about this, the challenge for a coach in knowing that they learned it. That's my challenge as a coach to be comfortable in knowing they learned it. Well, just, and just to go back to, it, it kind of ties into perception, which is where we were before, which is perception is also a huge challenge for coaches. Uh, and we assume that perception is automatic and that you look at something as you, and you see it, but you simply don't. And especially in a complex environment, you know, with like 12 players doing a, a whole lot of different things at any given time. And when your working memory is full and you're thinking about what drill am I going to do next? And who am I going to start on Saturday? And all those other things, you know, and, and uh, and how's Danny, you know, is Danny getting better? It's really easy for me to have players not executing successfully or frankly, not even executing the thing that I asked them to do. I, I tell a story about an example this is from a soccer practice, but in the, in the book, but then I say like, the most important thing for you to do is not judge this coach who tells players to do th something and then fails to notice that they simply, they, they simply don't do it after he asks them to do it because I guarantee you that it's happened to you. It's happened to all of us. It is incredibly hard to see what's happening right in front of your eyes accurately. And part of the reason it's so challenging is we just don't believe that about ourselves. We don't believe that we can look right at something and not see it. But, you know, cognitive science would tell us, you know, it's chronic, we, it happens to us perpetually. So one of the, you know, one, one of the like really simple and mundane things in the book that I really believe in is, well, the first thing I think is cognitively just to think about observation as a form of data, right? And if it's, if it's a form of data, I've got to track it and write it down. And I think, you know, when players do something in training, we tell ourselves that we're taking mental notes. Yeah, I'm watching and I'm thinking about what players are doing well and what they're not doing well. But if, if you think that you're going to watch five minutes of players doing a drill with six different things they have to do well and 12 different players, and at the end of it, you're going to know what is the one most important thing that we need to talk about here. It's not going to happen. It's going to be, what you talk about is going to be what you remember is going to be an accident from those five minutes, some tiny thing that drew your attention briefly that you still remember. And so you won't be as efficient in talking about the things that stand in the way of your athlete's performance. Just having a clipboard and writing it down and taking notes and tracking, here are the errors that I'm seeing. Writing out in advance, here's what excellence looks like when we're doing this drill. Here are the five things I wanna see players do, right? When they, now I start checking them off when I start seeing them or Xing them when I'm not seeing them. Now, instead of taking sort of mental notes, which is a way of saying not, you know, not really taking notes at all, I'm really tracking data there. And now I can make a data-driven decision about what is the most important thing for this team to talk about during the one minute I have to provide them with, you know, with coaching. Uh, you know, I, you know, I have to, my stops just have to be quick. I want to, I want to keep a sense of flow in my practice. I can only talk so much, you know, if I'm talking too much, players aren't playing. So I've got to be quick with my feedback. 
what is the important thing to, to talk about? What do I want to say about it? And I think that has to come from treating observation as a form of data. Well, and that's been a huge takeaway that you've confirmed for me through all your videos of your different teachers teaching in the classroom examples, just the importance of recording yourself and listening to yourself. Can you talk about that too as another data and observational point for you post? Yeah, I mean, I, I think of that, uh, it is so deeply humbling <laughs> Very much. to watch yourself. I mean, the first thing it takes is just bravery and stoicism because you won't, you won't be happy with what you see. You think you're so clear about what you say and then you watch yourself back and it's a muddle. And then you start to realize, you know, one of the reasons that players don't do what I ask them to do is because I think, I think it was clear, but it's not. Or I recognize that it's clear in the moment and I say it three times. Uh, and so I, you know, um, it all starts with perception. If I want to understand myself, I also have to see myself objectively. One exercise that I love to do is just is to watch is to watch myself on video and then go through and like just take a transcript. Here's what I said to players either during my stoppage or while they're playing live. Let me go through and rewrite the transcript as I now wish that I'd said it. Let me strike out every extraneous word so I can deliver the same content in half as many words. Let me listen to the live comments that I made while players were playing and, and see how well they aligned to the point that I made at the stoppage and maybe change some of them so they're clearer or that they reinforce the importance of listening to the things that we talk about as a team. Um, you know, I just, I th it's one of the, it's such a profound and challenging piece. And this, this is really how we, how we get teachers better in the classroom. And again, it starts with perception. You watch a ton of game footage of basketball and you learn what basketball is supposed to look like. You watch a ton of game footage of coaching or teaching and you learn what coaching or teaching are supposed to look like. Um, and, and so, and so from that perspective, it would not only be important to watch yourself, but to watch other people, particularly coaches who you think are really good in action. So you're sort of developing a mental model of what does it look like when it's happening and happening right to me so that, um, so I have that in the back of my mind constantly when I'm coaching. Uh, I'll give you an example uh, because you talk about this. Good, good, good. That as coaches, we overuse that word so much. And look, until I started watching other practices years ago, I don't think I was aware of the use of the word good. And then when I heard other people overuse it, it connected with me to say, oh, I got to record myself and listen to how many times I say this and how much I'm providing useless information in terms of this non-specific type of word. Yeah, and I think that's, a, first of all, I think that's just a lot of humility on your part. And I think humility is when I, the more I talk to great coaches, I think like, you know, humility is such a key part of it, of the job, both teaching and coaching. But I think also, you know, one other thing in your comment that I find fascinating is we think more information often is better, but extraneous information is not a good thing. Not only does it fill working memory with less valuable things, but it erodes the importance of words. And I think that that's just one of the most important things to think about as a coach is that every time you speak, you're sending your players a message about how important your words are and what they should do with your words. And so if you say something and then you say it again, 
because you're not quite sure you said it clearly and you hadn't really planned it out. And then you say the third time because you want to make sure you got everything in there. And players are are kind of tuning you out by the third time you said it, they're practicing ignoring you. And I can't tell you how often I think players practice ignoring their coaches. A lot. For example, if you are telling, if you're coaching a player while they're playing and you're doing anything more than just cueing them in familiar vocabulary to do something you've trained them to do really well, they have a really hard choice to make. They can focus their working memory on hearing what you are saying and they can degrade what happens on, they, they will play, play, they will perceive less and play poorly and be able to execute less well. Or they can continue to play and focus their cognition on playing and they can ignore you. And I, you know, it's a lot to ask a player, <laughs> a player to, you know, to fail publicly on the floor that they're going to ignore you in many cases. And then they get better and more familiar with the idea of when he's talking to me, I tune him out. And so I just think attentiveness, not only to your words in any one interaction, but thinking about your, your words as a system, a system of communication in your practice that I always want to preserve the importance of and the value of and not cheapen it and erode it by situations where, which is. I love this line of thinking and I, I love your systems of communication and the importance of language. And you cover so much of that in the book, which is tremendous for coaches to hear some of the evidence-based ideas behind it. But it also struck me as you're talking and as I read your book is like, th this is tension between a coach thinking constant communication in practice is indicative of a great practice versus what really is important is purposeful conversation and purposeful communication. Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. Um, if I want my words to matter, they should matter. And, you know, one of my favorite phrases from the book, which I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about until someone quoted it back to me, which, which is focused coach, focused player, distracted coach, distracted player. You know, if you're talking about everything that comes into your head <laughs> and, you know, and there's just a ton of verbiage and it's all over the place. What you're doing is socializing your players to, to sort of for their attention to go suddenly from topic to topic and not to focus and not to think about most important things. And so I do think we have to be really careful about what we talk about and how much we talk and how important we, how important we show our words to be. Absolutely. Well, I think we, want, we want to socialize attentiveness and, our, and focus on our players whenever we can. Absolutely. I love that. And again, coaches read the book, you'll get a bunch of ideas from that too. And uh, you, you mentioned background knowledge. Can you, can you explain that and then explain how we develop that from a coaching perspective? Yeah. I mean, I think this is one of the fascinating things about education generally, not really talking about coaching, but you know, I, I think if you go on the internet, you can find a whole lot of people saying that facts are irrelevant and that facts are the opposite of higher order thinking. And that we should teach higher order thinking and we should not teach facts because um, if we teach higher order thinking, people will be able to be problem solvers. And I think that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful idea. Cognitive science tells us is how the brain works. Because you can't have deep, you, you can't do critical thinking about things that you don't know a lot about. 
you and I, I'm guessing this about you, I know this about me, you and I have never had an insight about particle physics. And someone could ask us questions all day about particle physics, and we would never have a deep insight. We'd never be able to do critical thinking about it. In fact, we do an exercise in our workshops with teachers where we say, okay, uh, have a conversation with a partner. Why is the sky blue? Go. One minute. Right now, uh, now take one minute to write out your best thoughts, uh, the most insightful thoughts you've had. Why is the sky blue? And, and, and the, the secret is that no one in the room knows why the sky is blue. And so if I give you lots of opportunities to have discussions and do writing and do critical thinking about the skies, well, you can't, you've, you cannot do it unless you have the background knowledge and you understand, you know, the principles of light distribution and, uh, and light waves, et cetera. It's the same in sports, right? That you, um, to be able to do critical thinking about a topic, you have to understand a lot of background knowledge about the topic. And so I think there are four really important things for a, a club to have to build background knowledge, other than just the belief that, um, that have to teach, that knowledge is the basis of higher order thinking. The first thing is a curriculum, and I have, to, I have to think about what I want to teach when, and I need it to be coordinated so that if I'm a 12-year-old coach or, you know, coach of, or a coach of 16-year-olds, I know what everyone learned as a 15-year-old, and I can refer back to it. Um, and so that I can be sure that everyone on the team knows the same thing, right? If, if only half the players on my team know what, um, know what a zone press is, then, <laughs> then it's really hard for me to build off of it and build more knowledge and refer to it and have players use that. So I need to be clear about what gets taught when and have that be consistent. And then the second, but, but really a curriculum is a coach facing, a club facing document. Then I need some sort of a document that is player facing that describes what I, would, what I would call either principles of play or a game model, which is a series of phrases that we use among each other to describe what we're trying to do on the floor. In the book, there's a really beautiful video that a, a coach, at, um, a coach uh, John Leonzo put together. You know, um, I don't know, if, I don't know, I'd be curious to know what you, what you thought of these videos, but you know, he has a series of principles of play for what we, wanted, what we want to do when we pass the ball. One of them I think is, um, is passed to where the pressure came from. And so there are a series of videos where he shows players doing this, right? And this is a phrase that the players use to describe what they want to happen on the floor. And I think having that idea of like, we have a set of phrases that describe our, our, the approach that we want to take most of the time, really important. The third thing that I'd say is hugely important that's highly overlooked is a list of vocabulary. Vocabulary is the single most overlooked form of background, form of knowledge. You can't really conceive of something until you have a word for it. And if you don't have consistent words for something, you don't really coalesce all your knowledge about that topic in the same way. And I would just, you know, like sports is full of vocabulary. And in soccer, we talk about breaking lines and getting between the lines. And, and, and I guarantee you that players have no idea what we're talking about sometimes when we're talking to them about those things. A coach wrote me a, a blog post over the weekend about the idea in, in soccer, there's a phrase called back foot and receiving the ball with your back foot. And he asked a bunch of players, this is in a, in a, an academy in England for, you know, ideally for guys who want to be professional players one day, no one has any idea what, you know, they have the 16 different definitions of what they mean by back foot. And so if you could just standardize vocabulary, across the years so that when I talk to you about back foot when you're a 10 year old, and then, then I know that as a, as a 12 year old coach, I can refer to back foot and everyone knows what I'm talking about. And we're all imagining the same thing. My daughter played in a club where one year um, her coach talked to her about receiving the ball side, arm, side on. 
and the next year the coach talked to her about receiving the ball in the half turn. Those are both two different phrases for exactly the same thing, which is, um, I won't get into what it is. So half of her experience about receiving the ball side on, which she should have combined with her experience about receiving the ball in the half turn to give her a larger conception of how to receive the ball. She never put the two together that they were the same thing. And so there are all these vocabulary problems. And so I just think one of the first things I would do as a club is to have a vocabulary list. These are the words, these are the most important things we want words for. These are the words that we're going to use to describe those things so that we're consistent. So we're all talking the same language. I'm going to make sure that the kids know what these words mean, maybe with video, maybe with definitions, you know, with lots of examples. I'm going to ask them, what was that? What did we just see Jeremy do there? What was, you know, which principle of play, what vocabulary word did we see him do there? So that we can all speak the same language. We, we can, we're limited in our communication if we don't all speak the same language. The last thing that I think is really important from a, from a knowledge standpoint is just a punch list of things that you've taught. Um, because you know, we, have, we haven't really gotten into this, but chapter two is about long-term memory. If I make a list of the things that I've taught in the course of the year, to have things go into long-term memory, I have to come back to them and use retrieval practice and reteach them again after a period of forgetting. If I have that list, I can drop, I can take the knowledge and recycle it and bring it back, cause players to have to retrieve it into their long-term memory and therefore build, uh, build stronger recognition of it um, periodically throughout practice. Uh, and so just being intentional about, the, about what's on my retrieval list and how often I want to ask kids to go back to what they've started to forget, I think is also really important. Sorry for a little bit of a, a, little no. bit of a long answer there, but, not, but knowledge is so important and so overlooked. I love the four things. Coaches love lists, as you know. So those four things will help guide their thinking in terms of moving forward if they've read the book or they haven't read the book. But the other part that I love that you brought up is this long-term memory, which I was going to get to. And chapter two obviously covers this, but this idea of chunking and the fact that long-term memory is vastly underappreciated yeah. by most educators and coaches. You've forgotten almost everything you've learned in your life, right? What a thing to think about. Um, and that this happens to your athletes too. I think the most, maybe the most important thing from that chapter is, that, is to understand the difference between performance and learning. At the end of practice on Wednesday afternoon, you're working on your, um, your half court defense. Am I okay on my basketball terminology there? You're doing great. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're working on your half court defense and it appears to you that your players understand it. And that they've learned all the, you know, you've given them three or four things you really want to make them do. You really want to have them do. And they appear to understand it. On Saturday, when the game comes, you're infuriated and frustrated because all the things that you saw at the end of that practice do not show up in the game. And frankly, you're inclined to be mad at the kids and think, you know, you guys don't focus. You don't constantly, you don't, we, we worked on this on Wednesday. You know, I know you can do it because I saw you do it on Wednesday. Where did it go? And the answer is because, because they're humans, they forgot it. And in fact, you can, you can map this. Since the 1800s, we've known at least the shape of what we call the forgetting curve, which is the rate at which people forget things. And the thing that we know about forgetting is that it is a ruthless and tireless enemy that an hour after practice, players will have already begun forgetting what they learned. The next day, they will wake up and they will have forgotten as much as, you know, possibly as much as half of it, unless I call it, cause them to retrieve it and remember what they've begun to forget repeatedly and systematically and kind of an intent 
intentional ways with, uh, and I think about the spacing and the way that I retrieve it, they will forget it. Um, and so I'm not saying there aren't situations where players don't forget things because they're not attentive and they're not focused, but, but it's entirely possible that the reason is because I didn't understand the difference between performance, which is being able to do something while I'm learning it and learning, which is being able to do something after a delay, after, <laughs> after accounting for forgetting three or four days later. And those are very different things um, because most educators assume, assume that once they've seen players do it, they will always be able to do it. But they, the second you walk off the court, they begin forgetting. So this speaks to practice design mostly. Yeah. It also it also speaks to, as you said, humility of the coach a little bit to understand that a yeah. one-time performance is not learning. It's yeah. got to be repeatable. So talking about retrieval practice, can you bring us into the domain of interleaving and this idea of mixing to aid learning? Yeah, great. Um, so the first thing you need to know about retrieval practice is that um, the best time to remember something is when you've begun to forget it that that's when you have to work to remember it. And if you remember it successfully, then it's encoded best in your long-term memory. So a cognitive scientist would say, when you learn something on Wednesday, you should come back to it on Friday's practice when people, when your players have begun to forget it. They'll remember it a little bit better. Then you should come back to it next Wednesday, you know, after a little bit of a longer delay and come back to it again. And that's, that's the idea of spacing. But that also implies that it it would mean it would take a long time to learn something if that's the only thing that we could do to build memory. But one of the other things that we can do is we can simulate the role of forgetting or, or basically accelerate forgetting by causing people to concentrate on something else. So let's say just to go back to like my half court defense, I'm working on it for a little bit. Ordinarily, you know, when I first started studying coaching, I thought, you know, you should just, you should, your practice should be a deep sustained meditation on half-court defense. And I think when you're first installing it and you want people to understand concepts, I think there's an argument for that. But when you want to start building it into mem long-term memory, so it's going to show up in the game, interleaving is the idea that you would work on your half-court defense and then go do, go do something else, right? Now let's work on our fast break offense. Now come back. Now, if, if we did that for five minutes and came back to half-court defense, the five minutes in between would have caused me to forget my players to forget about half court defense. They would have been focusing on, on fast break offense. And that would cause them to have to strain harder to remember the things that we talked about, which encodes it more in long-term memory. So essentially I'm, I'm simulating the, 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 the role of elapsed time by, by going back and forth between activities and causing players to have to strain harder to remember. And so blocking practice is doing something over and over and over again for a sustained period of time without, without break. It can be useful in teaching something until a skill is stable. It's challenge is that it looks more successful than it is because players improve their performance rapidly in practice, but they also forget quickly afterwards. If we interleave, which is go from one activity to another, and then maybe back to that activity or one skill back to over to another skill, back to that skill, then I, it's messier. Players will probably get things wrong more, but they're more likely to remember them. So if I go um, layup, layup, jump shot, um, uh, you know, some some other task, three point shot, yeah, three point shot, right? As I shift, it's harder. I'm going to hit fewer three point shots than if I have you take ten three point shots in a row, but you will remember more of it. 
will be more challenging. And in the long run, you'll learn more. And so that's the idea of interleaving. And I could do that serially, which is I could go layup, jump shot, three-point shot, layup, jump shot, three-point shot, or I could do it randomly, which is layup, layup, jump shot, layup, three-point shot, three-point shot, jump shot, right? And just and have you have to react to a situation, either my verbal cue or actually a cue from a defender um, to have to decide which of those you want to do. And again, like the more you're straining to do the cognitive work of preparing the skill mentally and executing the skill, the more you're going to remember it. And so it's really caused me to have to reflect a lot on what the right balance between blocking and interleaving is either within drills or between drills in practice. Again, that's something I, I talk about a bit in the book, but I think it's a real open question as to how to find that right balance. But I certainly think that people are drawn towards blocked practice and it's a little bit of a false God. Well, cause it brings comfort and confidence for the player and does. for the coach. But as you said, false God it makes you feel like a better coach because you can see the progress happening. It's just, it's a little bit of an illusion. Hey coach, I know I've told you about this before, but bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but NBA college basketball and the NHL are in full swing. Bet online even covers award shows, TV and reality TV, real time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. Bet online has you covered for all the news scores and odds. It's the best way to place your bets and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your sports book experts. Please use promo code armchair at checkout. Hey coach, brief interruption to tell you about eBay sneakers. From rare dead stock to the latest release, you can find the exact sneaker you've been looking for on eBay. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go to get the pair you've been eyeing. And with eBay's Authenticity Guarantee, a team of independent professional authenticators perform a rigorous inspection of the sneakers you purchase before they're sent to you. So you can shop confidently knowing your pair is the real deal. And for the sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers $100 or more, making it free to sell or flip your collection. With other sites taking as much as 25%, you're going to have a lot of extra money left for more sneakers. Check out ebay.com slash sneakers today. Well, and back to your practice example of the half court defense, it made you feel good because it looked like they learned it, but they learned it in a practice design that wasn't going to transfer and be retained. Right. They performed it. You would say maybe, right. They, they, yeah, it's yeah. Not the transfer they didn't learn it. They performed it. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love the term simulate forgetting. And that, that's tremendous that uh, you use that and shared that to be able to bring this concept home of mixing as well. But another thing that you talk about is desirable difficulties. Can you talk about this concept of this optimal challenge? Yeah, well, what I want, optimal learning appears to happen, according to most of the cognitive scientists, so cognitive psychologists that I've read, when you strain hard to remember something and then successfully remember it. And that's, uh, that's a, I think what you describe as a definition of, of desirable difficulty, right? I want you to work hard to have to do it. The harder, the better, but not so hard that you fail to do it in most cases. So I, I want a, uh, not a perfect success rate, but a fairly high success rate. But I want, I want the success to be really challenging. That the more difficult the act of retrieving the knowledge into my, uh, into my working memory, the more I remember the experience, the more it encodes it, 
the more it's easy to pull that memory out of long out of long-term memory when I need it under short notice in performance. Which goes back to your point earlier, just about making practices cognitively intense. But when I'm doing that, I'm preparing players to transfer their knowledge and to, you know, and to have the long-term memory that they need to succeed in decision-making in the game. I, I love the example because, I mean, again, it gives – the other part that you've connected for me with the classroom and coaches is this sense of satisfaction. Players and students get a sense of satisfaction when they had to work hard to do something as opposed to something that's easy and they can already do. And that's a part that we're striving for in this practice and teaching environment is that players feel like they achieved something because it was, as you said, just hard enough, but achievable. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. One of the things I wish that I'd written about in the book that I didn't is the, the concept of flow, um, which people talk about in the sports setting all the time. But, you know, flow is sort of when you when you lose yourself in a cognitive task, often you sort of lose sense of time in it. But you, there's a real sense of pleasure involved in it. And usually what it involves is successful struggle to solve a problem at the optimal level of challenge. And it's, you know, um, people are really drawn to this. It's a very powerful form of, of pleasure. And I think this is fascinating, particularly with, with younger athletes, because so often we want sports to be fun and we want to make practice fun. And the funnest possible thing is losing yourself in a sense of flow, which is, um, I'm learning the thing that I love to do. It's challenging, but I'm, I'm, I'm good at it. And it requires all of my focus so that I almost lose track of time. And I look up and suddenly I'm like, wow, how can practice be almost done? We just started. I think that happens when we find that ideal rate of challenge and clarity. So for me, again, let's, let's go back to the book, Interleaving Desirable Difficulties, what this brings me to is a lot of your conversation about planning and the fact that we often yeah. give players way too much information at once. So it's kind of this tension that exists that you talk about. Yeah, I think one of the important things is um, you know, more information. This sort of a theme we've hit on a couple of times in the conversation, but more information is not necessarily better. For so many, for all the right reasons, we want players to learn more. So we tell them one more thing and one more thing and one more thing. And one of the most important phrases to remember, one of the most memorable phrases for me in, uh, is what a rugby coach said to me, which is if you chase five rabbits, you catch none. And so we might do this. I'll, I'll give you a soccer example because I don't quite speak basketball well enough to do this. But if I, was, great, coach. if I was training players to build out of the back in soccer, I would say, I, let's say, I would say, great, pause, Girls, we're building out of the back. I want to see when it's really important that the ball has to be struck at pace across uh, across the back for the defender so that we move the opposition quickly. We want them to run side to side to side. The ball's got to be on the ground, though. If the ball's bouncing, it's too hard to control. And when you receive it, you have to receive it on your back foot and open up your hips and your eyes have to be up. And outside backs, you've got to press high so we can uh, so we so we can get into aggressive and aggressive positions that force them to defend. Everybody got that? Go. Right. What's going to happen during, <laughs> during that, during the practice that happens after that? I just told the girls five or six things I want them to work on. Most likely nothing productive because you can't think about five things at once. And so everyone will either choose one thing at random to work on. And I won't know whether that, what they're working 
and won't be able to reinforce it and said, yeah, that's a great job of opening up your hips. Um, or, uh, or they just won't be able to really remember what they're supposed to be working on. They won't really focus on working on anything and they'll just be kind of playing. And three minutes later, when I make another stoppage, I'll have to make the same five points over again. I would be much more successful if I paused them and said, pause, girls, first thing we need to focus when we're building out of the back is pace of our passes. Every pass has to be struck at pace from one defender to the other. Let me see that now. Go. Yes, Sarah, that's what it's supposed to look like. Emily, faster. You got to strike your pace, your, your, the ball faster. Uh, yes, Carly, that's what we're looking for. Love that pass, right? And now I'm giving them one thing to focus on. I'm telling them the degree to which they're successful at working on so they can, they can monitor and understand their success. Uh, and then at the next stoppage, I can say, great, now there's one thing we have to add to this. In addition to the pace of the pass, it has to be on the ground. Now let's focus on that. And so I think that I teach my players to get more done if I add more information, but it actually has perversely the opposite effect for all the right reasons, right? There's one, I'm an expert. There's so many things I want to tell you about the game of basketball. Let me tell you one more thing to think about, one more thing to think about and what I end up doing um, when you chase five rabbits, you catch none. Well, and it speaks to the, the concept that practice is not a coaching clinic. And there's a difference between a coaching right. clinic and a practice. And I think coaches lose sight of that sometimes. That's fascinating. Say, uh, just say more about it. That's a, that's, a, that's a cool idea. Say more about it. So when I go and speak in front of coaches at a coaching clinic, I am giving them as much information as possible in as short a time as possible because they have that background knowledge. When I'm coaching players, if I present a coaching clinic, if I present the same concept to players the same way I did to coaches, then I'm doing what you're saying, which is I'm giving them way too much information. So I don't actually know what they're taking away. And short bursts of information for players versus coaches, I can give them long bursts of information. Yeah, I love that for two reasons. One is it acknowledges the difference between novices and experts. And I think that also is one of the least understood things. And that, you know, like we read about the way that, um, you know, some elite coach coaches his NBA team. We think, great, that's how I should do it with my 14-year-olds. But they're, they're experts and the 14-year-olds are novices. And so one of the things we know from cognitive science is that if you put someone into a, uh, a constraints-based situation or a discovery learning situation, they learn a lot more. If they're experts, they learn really well from that situation. And you say, um, great, I'm going to make you play inside a really small box and you're going to have to figure out how to break down the opposition when you don't have a lot of space. Like experts will learn a ton from that. And novices won't really know how to, they'll, they'll try a lot of random things and they'll be looking at the wrong things and they'll, they'll, um, they'll get a lot wrong. And, and they actually would do a lot better if you said, here, here are three things I want you to try. So when you're talking to coaches, yeah, you can give them a lot of information fast because they, you know, they understand and they have spent their lives studying the game. And that's very different from the way that you would approach talking to a group of 14 year olds that are just learning a concept um, for the first time. I just think that, uh, you know, I think that's, I think that's really insightful. So you've said, so I want to go back to your build up from the back example, because I want to I want to notice something that you said that I think is the most important part is that when you gave us that example and you started to talk about, say, now Carly can do it, you you notice that. And I think that's a huge part that coaches sometimes miss as well, is that they do something, they, a great drill, a great practice design, whatever it is. But then they don't take the time to notice that a player can now do something they couldn't do before. And your feedback was, Carly, love that pass because the yeah. pace was what we wanted. 
I think that people think that positive reinforcement is primarily a tool to make people feel good. And it's nice that it does that. But the most powerful thing about positive reinforcement is it tells players what to replicate. Right? Players get it right all the time in practice and then fail to continue doing it because they don't know that they just got it right. And so the moment where like Carly does it and you say, yes, Carly, that's it. Or even like, yes, Carly, that's it. Three more, just like that. Helps her to replicate the success and understand what success feels like and attend to it and, and recreate it. And, and, you know, I think one other thing that's implicit in that is the connection between live feedback and, and teach, you know, stoppage feedback, which I think is one of the most overlooked aspects of feedback. It's one of, one of the most important parts of that chapter to me which is so often in a drill, you, let, let's say you have a coach and he stops the practice and he says, girls, the most important thing when we're building out of the back is the pace of passes. Every pass has to be struck really quickly. Let me see that now go. Girls start playing. Great entry pass, uh, Maggie. Yeah, yeah, way to open up, Sarah. Oh, love that first touch, Emily, right? All of those comments are about things that are totally unrelated to the stoppage that I just made, which was in the stoppage, I said that the thing I wanted you to think about was the pace of your passes. And my feedback, my live feedback is telling you that I've already forgotten that. Why would you think about my feedback if, I, if, I, if I've forgotten it 10 seconds later? Um, so, you know, to just the, the point we were talking about earlier about like the importance of coaches' words and like, I, I'm telling you that that stoppage, that you could safely ignore that stoppage because I've forgotten it five seconds after I made it, as opposed to if I make the stoppage and then I say, Yes, that's the, that's the pass we're looking for. Still hard. You can still, it's still faster. I'm like, still got Yes, that's the, now I'm not only helping you to self, to, uh, to self-assess whether you're doing it well, but I'm telling you that I see whether you use the feedback that I use, that I gave you and whether you attend to the things that I ask you to do. And I'm telling you how important I think that stoppage was. And so I'm just, I'm just showing you how important I think words are and, and coaching is in our culture. So again, I was, I was just talking earlier about how often I think players practice ignoring coaches. And I think a lot of it is because we're not intentional enough about what we talk about and why. And we make our words re- redundant and we don't show that our words matter. And you know, if it doesn't matter to us, it's not going to matter to players. Every coach, pause, rewind, listen to that again. That, that's brilliant, Doug. And that's what I, I believe that's one of the biggest challenges for coaches. And one of the biggest needs improvement areas is exactly what you just said. And that's great. And it, and it strikes me again for evasion sports like basketball, soccer, et cetera, that that's a huge issue because it comes back to this. It speaks to the disconnect between a drill and playing the game. And I'm not anti-drill, but I'm anti-drills that don't connect back to the game. And often the way we coach a drill as coaches is very different than the way we coach three on three, for example. And it doesn't make any sense because it's the same point you're trying to make in both. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I think, um, I think people also think that, you know, a three on three is such a great learning setting and you can do so many things in three on three, right? You, you could, every principle of the game, I would imagine that you could teach in three on three. And so rather than doing a drill, I could take the thing that I'm trying to do in the drill and, and put it in the three on three, as long as I'm disciplined about my teaching and my feedback. Um, you know, so like, I'll, I'll again, go, I'll revert to a soccer example because 
it's easier for me to speak soccer, but um, one of the most common drills in soccer is called a rondo. It's probably the equivalent of three on three. It's like what people play all the time. It's like a, basically it's keep away four, you know, four or five guys are on the outside and two guys in the middle. People do this exercise all the time, but they're just doing it to warm up. They're like, guys, go, go do rondos or go do rondos. See if you can keep the ball away from the middle guys seven times. But what a great coach does is he says, great, what we're going to focus on today is receiving with our back foot to break, to break lines of pressure. So I want you to pay attention to where the nearest defender is. And when you receive the ball, receive the ball across your body and try and get beyond that defender to create options for yourself. Or I could say today we're going to focus on the guy without the ball who's, who's nearest to the player with the ball has to check to him to give him a safer option when he's under pressure. But when he does that, the player who's opposite from him has to move away to create a line, to create a diagonal angle so we can pass right. So as we do rondos today, we're going to focus on those. It's a totally different drill if I'm focusing on receiving across my body or these sort of opposite movements by players within the rondo. I mean, ironically, most times coaches focus on neither of these, but I could take the rondo setting and just by making all of my feedback about back foot or opposite movements, I can make it a totally different drill. And I think it's the same with three, with like a three V three, right? We can make that exercise serve almost any learning purpose, as long as I'm focused on it and my feedback and my teaching focuses on that. And, and I think that's just to go back to your point about perception, most likely I'm, I'm learning it in a setting where the perceptive cues are much richer and much more useful than if I invented a drill that doesn't really look like the game. So this all connects because another part of your book talks about culture, which to me comes back to what you've talked about, which is relationships, right? And so many of these relationships start from you as a coach showing that you can help the player, right? That's the starting point of a relationship. It's not some magical thing off the court. It's me showing the player that I can help them. Teachers misunderstand this too. So I think that coaches could be forgiven for it, but this is really like, it's, this is really the starting point of the book. In the introduction, I I talk about um, this sort of gut-wrenching scene for me where I I got invited to present to a workshop of uh, soccer coach, you know, MLS coaches basically who were doing a professional license. And my plan for the workshop is I'm going to show them video of classroom teachers and they're going to analyze it. And it seemed like a great idea, you know, the night before and on the plane and I get to the hotel and I'm looking at these guys who are, you know, like legends of the game. And suddenly I'm like, I'm going to show them video of a math teacher. (laughs) What was I thinking? But it was too late to fix it. So I walk up to the front of the room. I have no other game plan. I show them this 30 seconds of this math teacher starting class. And the, f- the first thing that one of the coaches says is he's coaching everybody. And I, like, honestly, I just, I thought this is just like one of those banal comments that you make to break the silence. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, he's going around the room and he's giving feedback on the performance, constructive, useful feedback to every single kid. And he's telling them that he knows how he, he sees their performance and he knows how they're doing it and he, and he can make them better. And at this level, like you can't build relationships, you know, in a sports level, you can't build relationships by high-fiving guys if they're not, if, if you're not making them better and they don't feel like they're accomplishing their goals, they want to play, they want to win. Like everyone wants to be on the starting, in the starting lineup. And if they don't believe that you're going to get them there and they don't believe that, 
that they're struggling to get their matters to you and they don't feel like you are coaching them, it's not going to make a difference. And he said, I just realized watching this video that like, there are guys on my team who we don't talk to some days. They don't get any, you know, they get any feedback directed at them to make them better or to tell them how to, you know, how to solve their challenges in the game. And, you know, like, he's like, I'm just realizing how, how like isolating and lonely that is. And you cannot build relationships. You know, there's this adage in teaching that like, they don't care what you say until they know that you care. Which like, I get that. But I don't, it's only partly true. The only way they know that you care is if you teach them better. That's why they're there. That's why they're on the court. The way that you build relationships and show them that you care is by teaching them better. And then when you teach them better, then like, that's how you show them that you care. And then they care what you say. And so it's kind of, it's, it's a much more iterative process than I think people give it credit for building a relationships, you know, uh, and it just, it's, it all starts with, with, with teaching someone well with competence. Well, and to come around full circle, this helps you as a coach, as we talked about with that comfort and confidence as well, because every time I take the time to really notice that somebody improved, to acknowledge that they improved, this builds me up too, which I think has been the most important part of my development as a coach is realizing that I'm good at something because now my players have got better at something and it helps me. Yeah, it's funny because a lot of... Coaching is such a hard job. <laughs> like, Very much. Uh, you know, there's so much struggle and players get so much wrong and there's so much emotion to it. And, uh, you know, like there's, there are victories and losses and, uh, and there's player success and there's player struggle. Uh, it's such an emotional journey. I think um, helping yourself to see the progress that players are making is, is important. You know, players wouldn't want to play on a team where, I don't, I don't really think the endeavor of sport is in the long run about winning and losing. It's about competing and struggling, you know, to, to be excellent. But players wouldn't do that if they were, you know, 0-30, right? If, you felt, if they felt like they lost every game. It's the same for you as a coach. You have to sell, help yourself see the wins and understand the wins when they happen in terms of human development. And uh, it's, you know, I think it's another reason to sort of track data so you really can be aware of, like, how much better they're getting and the difference between you know, player, player X at time one and, and, and time two, because I mean, I think that when I talk to great coaches, it's a lot of how they taking pleasure in that process, even surprisingly, you know, like professional coaches at, you know, national team level and professional level, it's surprisingly more about the process than you would think. You know, I would guess they would be all wins and losses guys, but they talk to you and they're like, what really makes me happy is making someone better. It would be hard to do the job at that level of pressure unless you were wired that way or somehow you figured out that, I assume. I think, I think that's probably true. I think, you know, otherwise it's just too much of a roller coaster ride. And I think, you know, and I think it, I think it does mess with some people, right? Like it's, uh, I think it it tears tears people apart unless you're grounded in like some more enduring value. No, I just, I just love that point. And I, and I say one of the unique parts about coaching, which you alluded to is that like for teachers, for doctors, et cetera, th- their result is not necessarily printed the next day on the internet for everyone to discuss yeah. and everyone to be an expert on without having any training in it. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I mean, that is that is so true, right? Ever, everyone thinks they're an expert at your job and your performance is, is brutally public. Yeah, it's very challenging. It's interesting. It's, al- it's almost more challenging, I think, with um, in youth sports in some ways, because the person who should be most vested in a youth sports coach making decisions for the long run around player development are the parents. The player's parents should be the people talking about like learning and development. And I want, I want you to make my player love the game, learn the game and be parents are often the first people screaming for wins and evaluating the player, you know, moving their player to a different club. If they're, you know, if the team doesn't look like it's winning or feeling like a coach is a lousy coach because he doesn't win. And so you're kind of trapped. I think unless you, unless you help parents to see the game differently and to look for something other than wins and losses, then I think you're always trapped in this, like, well, what I'm trying to, what I say I'm trying to do or what I tell myself I'm trying to do is develop players, but really, uh, you know, I continue to be beholden to the, to wins and losses to convince people that I'm doing my job. Okay. And I'm so glad you brought that up because that's another huge part of your book. I think every coach needs to learn, especially if they deal with development level players, is that you talk about player development stalling due to learning goals, shifting from short term goals to, you know, again, you know, shifting to short term goals, which uh, aren't necessarily in the best interest of development. Yeah, I think I think it's. um, It's sort of counterintuitive that you uh, you would think that like things that taught you to win would teach in the short run would teach you to win in the long run. But I'm actually not sure that that's the case. And I think a lot of time, a lot of times, one of the things that happens to players when they stall is, you know, players are really great until they're 16. Then they get in an environment where all the preparation, all the practice is designed to prepare for the next game because the next game is big right now. They're in an environment where the games are not meaningless. And so instead of designing around long-term learning, and like we're learning to handle a press. We're like, we're learning to do what we need, we're going to need to do um, to beat Churchville on Saturday. And so we're always in this sort of like cycle of short-term learning, things that aren't encoded in long-term memory. And I, I, I think that's, you know, I think a lot of players who get great starts stall out in that, that environment because um, when the games get more important, the structure of training changes to be more short-term focused and it's easy to lose sight of long-term learning. And I, I do think that players suffer from that. I'm going to share one last thing with you and I, I could talk to you all day and uh, I'm so grateful for all this time, but there is, a, there's a line in this, uh, in the book. So maybe the game isn't the best teacher. <laughs> it's an unequal teacher yeah. to me. And again, a lot of people think I'm all games approach, I'm all this or that. But what I actually believe in is this progression of structure to unstructure, yeah. which is essentially what you're saying there. And I have to have you talk and expand on this idea. Well, I love your phrase progression from structure to unstructure, because it presumes that, you know, again, that like background knowledge influences how you play in an unstructured environment and that novices learn differently from experts. People in the field of soccer love to romanticize pickup soccer and the, you know, the favelas of Brazil where people play on the street. Futsal, yeah. Yeah, where that's where, you know, the greatest players in the world emerge from, you know, from the favelas of Brazil and the, and the you know, the, uh, the, you know, the neighborhoods of Buenos Aires and Madrid. But that's, that's only part of the story, right? Some kids emerge from that environment, but most kids fail. Uh, 
you can't really measure the quality of a training environment by uh, by the winners, right? It, it's the equivalent of like um, encouraging a bunch of people to run <laughs> to run across the street, and the really fast ones make it across the street, and you decide that running across the street makes for fast kids, right? It's um, you know, a lot of people fail. The people who have the best knowledge and are best prepared rise in that setting. But if my goal is to train everybody and develop players who don't get off to a head start, then teaching them what to do in the game and how to thrive in the great in the game and giving a vocabulary to discuss the game so they understand what they're doing more, you know, it, and it goes back to sort of what I said earlier about a constraints based setting. Um, games are a great vehicle for learning. If I use them as a tool to instill learning, and if I prepare people to learn in that setting, and if I don't, and they just kind of fall back on the like, oh, the game will teach them. They'll be making decisions the whole way along. Um, they'll be just as likely making terrible decisions as good decisions. And some players may thrive, but many, many players will, will struggle and fail and learn suboptimally. And I just think that it's a coach's job to make sure that everyone learns as much as they possibly can. And it's semantics in basketball, but I'm a big believer in this and changing our phrasing, our wording from scrimmage to five on five, like five V five, because when we say scrimmage, that implies we're rolling out the balls and their players are doing whatever. But what we're really talking about is exactly what you've talked about in this whole podcast. We script it. We create a condition that we want or something to shape through a constraint, whatever it may be. And then we're going to coach it either through, you know, direct feedback, direct instruction, or through the use of questions. And that's, again, this whole podcast is all about that. I think that's a great point and a great one. You know, like the difference between the activity that I'm using and my learning goal is important to distinguish, right? Because people conflate the two all the time. What are you doing in practice? We're going to play some 5v5. Great. What is the 5v5? What are you going to learn? What is your purpose of the 5v5 today? It could be different from tomorrow and it could be different from yesterday. Because in many ways, you know, when you ask coaches to narrate what they're doing, they'll often tell you the setting or the activity and not the purpose of the activity. And I think it's important to be clear about purpose if we want to maximize learning. Doug, I cannot thank you enough. Uh, you've been a huge influence on myself and my coaching through, throughout my many years of coaching. And I can't thank you enough for all that you've shared. And uh, coaches, I mean, it's a must to follow Doug. It's a must to read all of his blogs and all of his past videos, podcasts, et cetera. But especially this book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, it's just a tremendous book and uh, will help so many of you stimulate your thinking and continue your development. Chris, thanks for having me on. It was really fun. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Mm-hmm.